Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. We are continuing for uh, two more weeks on this series, Breaking Free, which uh, we are looking at the words that Jesus said to the Pharisees. One-third of Jesus' ministry, his words, uh, his sermons were actually spoken to the Pharisees. So we want to make sure we spend time unpacking what those uh, things are. And so um, follow along if you have. We'll be in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50 today. Um, Now, uh, what if I told you there was a place um, that was absent of sunlight and warmth, a place that was absent of rest and the goodness of God, a place that was absent the joy of God, a place that I just refer to as Illinois. Uh, (laughs) It was a place that I lived for for about 11 years before coming here, and if you've ever been to Illinois, it is frigid. Um, And Texas, I confess to you, has made me soft being here the last few years. But it's like, you go outside, and it's just like, you can't even breathe, it's so cold. I don't know if you've been in the Midwest or Alaska or somewhere like that, where it's just like, how do people function with this kind of cold? And yet everyone goes about their life. And I just remember, we were there for 11 years. And then fast forward, we come to Texas, where it's a land just flowing with sunshine and sweet tea and hospitality, a land filled with the presence of God. And then I remember we got here, and there was a lady uh, who was about 85 years old that in the summer, you remember when they have those heat streaks? It's like 99 degrees for like seven straight days. And really sweet lady comes up to me and goes, Brian, welcome to the waiting room for hell. <laughs> I was like, you go grandma, all right? So you just talk about polarizing experiences from extreme, frigid, dry, I mean, just cold Illinois to all of a sudden just this hot, intense place called Texas. Now, the reason I tell you that is that, you know, our experience was polarizing from the temperatures. But when you look at this text, what you see, it is polarizing to see the spiritual temperature of this woman. She has a warmth, an intensity, a desperation, a longing to get to the feet of Jesus, to get forgiveness, to get his approval. And then you see this religious man, this Pharisee named Simon. And what you see is his posture could not be more different. There's a polish There's a formality, there is a coldness to how he approaches this man named Jesus. And so what I wanna speak to you today about this uh, topic is just a couple ways that we can break free from certain things that I believe will create a coldness in our response towards Jesus. Now before I do that, let me just say this as we read this text just to give you a little setup. When you read this, uh, you have to understand how awkward and embarrassing and frankly just weird this, uh, this uh, situation would have been. I mean, you have a woman who walks in. First of all, this was a prominent feast, and we know that because uh, they actually had dinner tables that were, that were the right height, but notice that in this text we read, it said that Jesus and the others had their elbows on the table and their feet were out. And that was a sign that this was a prominent feast because they would have tables like this when they would bring actually prominent people, so like two rabbis, or if they had a politician or someone who they deemed worthy of recognition, they would create this feast and people would come and listen to what this person had to say. And remember in the text, it says the woman entered the room. Well, when I first read this, it sounded a little like breaking and entering, but she didn't actually break and enter into this room. It was common that when they had these feasts, the prominent people would be around the table. And then there would be people sort of on the outskirts, the edges of the room, listening to what the rabbis were discussing, listening to what that politician might say. 
And so this woman is in the room. The awkward thing, though, is what she does. She literally, without worrying about what's happening in the room, the room dynamics where she's supposed to be sitting, she takes this expensive jar of perfume, she breaks it, the Bible says, and she begins to weep and literally wipe Jesus' nasty feet with her tears. That word tear there literally can mean fountain of tears. So this isn't just like a few little tears. This is just awkward, her weeping alone. If someone was in this room and all of a sudden just started weeping to the point that everyone was distracted by that, that'd be one thing. Then this woman who has a colorful past makes her way to the feet of Jesus and with her hair starts to rub his feet. And people are probably going, why is Jesus allowing this? And how does Jesus even know this woman? And so this just, you have to understand, there is an awkwardness in this text. But what you also find is this woman has a desperation. She has a longing. She has a need. And she is not going to let the approval of other people or the awkwardness of this moment keep her for what she deems most necessary for her life. There is a warmth that she has versus a coldness. So if we're gonna have a warmth like that, let me just give you a few things from this text that I think we'll have to break free from. The first thing I think we'll have to break free if we want a warmth and an intensity, a passion for Jesus is this. I believe we will have to break free from a spirit of criticism and step into a spirit of compassion. See, can I just say this, that criticism is easy, but also this, you know, criticism, constant criticism, a spirit of criticism will create a cold heart towards God. And not only that, like real criticism at its core is easy, anybody can do it, but compassion. Compassion is costly, because people are messy, and they do odd things like in this story. And so in essence, what we have to understand is that criticism just sees the actions and they start to demonize those actions. Compassion starts to look at the person. Compassion sees a person. And it starts to ask questions like, why did that person respond that way? What might be going on in their story? Do they know Jesus? Is there something painful they're experiencing? I'll never forget, I don't know if you've had a moment like this. Have you ever had a moment where you're just verbally attacked? Some of you are going, yeah, it's called marriage, right? <laughs> but I remember I, I was preaching one time. I've had people sometimes, you know, come up with some emotion. I've never had anybody come up like this. And literally she comes up and she goes, you're wrong. And I mean, it was more than you're wrong. I mean, there was so much emotion and intensity. And then she just goes, how dare you? And she goes, what you said was wrong. And I'm sitting there replaying, did I say something uh, like heresy? And then I realized I just preached on forgiveness. <laughs> and then I'm going, okay, what's happening here? And it was creating such a scene that I literally went into one of these rooms and I just listened for about four minutes. And she just repeated all these things. How dare I say this? God doesn't want people to be forgiven unless they repent. I mean, it's just all these intense, intense things. And I'm sitting here in my mind going, honestly, she's wrong in a lot of them. And so as she starts to criticize me, guess what starts to well up in my spirit? Criticism. And I'm just thinking, I'm gonna give her about three or four minutes to finish, and then I'm gonna tell her what the Bible actually says. And I don't know what happened, but something in that moment, it was like the Holy Spirit just revealed something, and I just asked this question. Can I ask why there's so much emotion? And her husband just chimed in, and he said, Brian, you need to know this. And he proceeded to talk about what their family, what their daughter had experienced. It was the darkest thing I've ever heard in my life. And all of a sudden, it was like this spirit of criticism in me moved from a spirit of criticism to a spirit of compassion. 
See, criticism is easy to do. All it does is that when someone wrongs you, you just wanna be vindicated or you just want justice, but compassion is costly. Only a mature person can be a compassionate person because you have to ask, what is the need behind the deed? What is going on in this particular person's life? And so criticism is something that is easy to do And honestly, with things like Thanksgiving and family gatherings come up, some of you just imagine right now there are people around you that you struggle to interact with. But can I just say this? This is what's happening in this text. Jesus models a spirit of compassion, but listen to what this Pharisee does in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, notice that, just a a spirit of criticism towards Jesus. If you were a prophet, He would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So here is Jesus moved with compassion. Here is this man moved with criticism. And so in essence, the the person in this text we know is Simon. It's not Simon Peter, the disciple. It's Simon the Pharisee. And what most likely happened with Simon the Pharisee is he saw Jesus preaching, and he probably liked what he said. He He was intrigued by Jesus. He probably saw Jesus perform some miracles and he thought, you know what, I'm gonna invite him over to my house. But notice what he has. He has sort of a critical curiosity. He's just waiting and watching Jesus and trying to catch him in a moment he doesn't like. When someone has a spirit of criticism, what they will constantly do is they just kind of watch people with a caution. That They get in a room around people and they just sort of watch with this, this critical, almost cynical eye. They're waiting to see what that person does. Said another way, a spirit of criticism highlights the negative things in people. But a spirit of compassion highlights what's good, highlights what is, what is possible in that particular person. You know, there was a man named Denny Nequist at my last church and uh, he had the greatest gift of compassion I've ever met. I mean, just everywhere he went, he led these high school boys. He started when they were freshmen, and then he led them through their senior year. And I don't know how to say it nicely, but these boys that he led were like mini terrorists. I mean, always picking on people. Whenever you were leading a lesson, they were the ones who would constantly just ridicule and make fun of you. And so th- these boys just were always into something. It seemed like they were never, ever along for what we were doing. And I remember Denny would show up every single day. Keep in mind, he led for four years. Most people wouldn't have led for four months. And he just kept showing up. And you know what? He would show up every single Sunday and he'd just have this smile. He'd go, Brian, God's good, isn't he? And then he'd say, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And I was just like, how is this man doing this? One day he goes, you know what? Today's gonna be a good day. And I said, Denny, do you know what boys you're leading? (laughs) And then finally, I just said, Denny, I've gotta ask this question. You've been leading and you are so positive every single week. What's your secret? I mean, how do you get positive? You know what he says to me? I've never forgotten this. He said, you know what I do with anybody who's in my small group? I go through, I look at their life, and I think of one positive thing, and I focus on that one thing. And then this kind man says this phrase I'll never forget. He looks at me and he says, you know what? And sometimes with these boys, it takes a long time to find one thing. (laughs) And what is he doing? He is modeling a spirit of compassion. Anybody can walk into a room, meet someone, and then just go, you know, I didn't like this person when they said this, but what grace does, what compassion does, is it highlights not who people are right now, but who they can and will be in Jesus. What compassion does is it doesn't just look at people and see them as they are, it sees them as who they are in Jesus. 
Can I just say this? What most people are moved by, if we're not careful, is we're moved by tolerance. The spirit of criticism will tolerate people. We all have people probably in this room, probably people at Thanksgiving, probably people at Christmas that just don't have that little thing called emotional intelligence, that speak in awkward moments, that cause complexity. And you know what happens if you're not careful? You just tolerate them. You just sort of go, well, that's them, and you write them off in your mind or you avoid them in the hallways. Can I just say, Jesus was never moved by tolerance. He was moved by hospitality. Jesus sought out the people that were difficult to love, the people who did not have emotional intelligence, the people that probably frustrated everyone, and he elevated them, he loved them, he served them. What we're talking about, I have never in my life met anyone with a warmth of Jesus, the passion of Jesus, the love of Jesus, who is moved by a spirit of criticism, who elevates the things in people's life that are not good and tolerates people. But I tell you this, everyone I've seen who has a fire for Jesus, loves people even when it's difficult, is moved by a spirit of compassion. The Bible never says Jesus was moved by deep criticism. It only ever says he was moved by this powerful force called compassion. And so in essence, Jesus was most critical of those who had more criticisms of other people, the religious people of his day. And so as we go into Thanksgiving, as we go into this season, can I just encourage you, part of having a warmth for Jesus means that we operate with such a compassion for other people. But then that begs the question, how do you get a compassion like Jesus? How do you get a compassion like Jesus? Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 7, 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Do you notice that phrase, her many sins? Notice what Jesus is highlighting. This woman has a track record and a past, but he is not majoring in her mistakes. Notice what he is doing. He is elevating. He is having a spirit of hospitality and a spirit of compassion because he says, look at her great love. That's what he's elevating. And can I just say this? If you find yourself in a place where it is easy to criticize other people, the only way you can be moved by compassion towards others is if you first understand God is moved by compassion towards you. Most people try to whip up compassion, doesn't work. People are too messy, too difficult, it's too hard. People will wound you, betray you, say things behind your back, but you know what happens when you encounter the compassion of God? You go, if he could love me like that, then I can love this person like that. You know, my little daughter, Selah, just this last week, uh, she climbed in my lap, but when she climbed in my lap, she elbowed me in the face, she kicked me in the stomach, <laughs> and then she proceeded to sprawl out without any acknowledgement of what she had done, and then she said this, Dad, rub my back. <laughs> now, you know what I did not say to my sweet daughter? I did not say, hey, Selah, I just wanna be honest with you. You woke up eight times last night. <laughs> not five, not seven, eight times. So unless you stop being nocturnal, I will not rub your back. <laughs> I did not say to my daughter, hey, you know what? Like, I just feel like the way you approached me was a little off. Um, <laughs> If you want, you can schedule an appointment with me. I'll be free from 2 to 2.30. Why didn't I do that? Because she's my daughter. Because I'm a father. And the reason I tell you that is that most of us, when we think about God, we think that he's probably more moved by critique than he is by compassion towards us. So we're gonna sit down with him and he's gonna go, hey, John, hey, Kevin, wasn't a good week last week, was it? Hey, you said some things, you did some things. Or hey, you know, the way you approach me, and you, you see this with Christians, there's like this formulaic response, like he's lion and he's lamb, and so even when you approach God sometimes, you're like, I don't know how to approach him. Approach him like a father. 
The truth is the reason you can do that is because of the atonement of Jesus. The blood of Jesus gives us a boldness and an access. That, that part of what we get to do is just sit and be with Jesus. When's the last time you went to Jesus without an agenda and you just sat and felt his affection and his kindness and his approval of you? When you start to see that, when you start to go, I've got the God of the universe who is with me, the most powerful being, the most wise person in the universe, and he's with me and he's for me. Notice what the Bible says. It doesn't say that it's the critique of God that leads to repentance. It's the kindness because he's moved by compassion towards his children. And so in essence, what we've got to get to this place is we see that compassion of God because when you see the compassion of Jesus for you, it will always move you towards compassion towards other people. You cannot whip this up. You have to break free from a spirit of criticism and move towards compassion, but the way is to understand the compassionate heart of the Father. But then there's something else that we have to break free from in this text. I think you don't, you don't only have to break free from this spirit of criticism, you have to break free from the need for the approval of others. You have to break free from the need for the approval of others. You know, our need for approval will keep us from a real desperation for God. Said another way, you cannot be desperate for God and for the approval of other people. One will win out in your life. You will end up serving, honoring, almost listening to that person's voice or the voice of God. One will win out. And that's what's so shocking about this text. This Pharisee, we find out, is more worried about what the other Pharisees will say if he worships and serves Jesus and proclaims him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. This woman doesn't care about the approval of other people. She breaks into this space, breaks this bottle of perfume, and in an awkward way, just anoints the feet of Jesus because she's desperate to get to his feet. She's desperate for forgiveness, and she doesn't care what anyone else thinks. She just has this longing for Jesus above all else. And Jesus actually speaks to this tension in verse 44, listen to what he says. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, notice this. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And again, what Jesus is saying is, you were cold, you were calculated. See, everyone in this context knew what Jesus was talking about. When you walked into a house, if you were a prominent guest, you were given a basin or a bowl of water because when you were walking throughout the area, you had these open-toed sandals and so your feet were muddy and dirty. And notice what Jesus says, there was no water that was given. In addition to that, it was common in that culture when someone prominent walked into that house that you would greet them with a kiss of friendship. And notice what Jesus says, there was no kiss of friendship that was given. It was common in that culture when someone of significance or importance walked in, you would anoint their oil with head as a symbol that you have value and honor in our home. But notice what Jesus says, there was no oil that was given. But notice what this woman does. Look at this man's response, cold, polished, formal. Sort of this dignity, this prideful dignity. This, this welcoming Jesus, but not surrendering to Jesus. And then you contrast that with this woman, desperation. Almost like an abandonment to self and the worry of what others think. I mean, she's just surrendered, doing whatever she can. You know, it's interesting. And in 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen, 15, Paul says that a woman's hair is her glory. 
In that culture, it's different than our culture, but literally a woman, because of modesty in that culture, would keep her hair bound up. And then when she was married, she would let her hair down. And notice what happens. This woman goes to the feet of Jesus. She had to take down her hair. And with her glory, she basically uses it as a towel to wipe the nasty, dirty feet of Jesus. She doesn't care what anyone thinks. She's desperate to get to the feet of Jesus, to get his approval. She doesn't care. And when I speak about this, I I think that we have to have a passion. But it's important that you know, I'm not speaking about emotionalism. I'm not talking about getting whipped up in a service on Sunday morning once a week and then having nothing transform our lives. I'm talking about a kind of approval, a kind of longing for Jesus where we are so desperate that we say everything else in this world has grown strangely dim, including the opinions and the approval of other people. Because I'll tell you this, the approval of others will keep you from showing up on Sunday morning or in worship spaces and truly worshiping with your soul. But a desperation, a desperation will get you to worship like David where you become undignified and you catch the attention of heaven. Approval of others will get you to a place where you stay inside the boat of comfort, but you never experience the thrill of really following Jesus. But desperation will get you outside of the boat even if no one in your family or your community chooses to follow Jesus and you will experience the thrill of walking on water even if you sink for a little bit. Desperation will get you out of the boat. Approval for other people will keep you silent about the name of Jesus and the love of God around coworkers or family members or neighbors because you don't want to offend people or ruffle any feathers. Desperation will be like Luke chapter five where a couple friends ripped a hole in the roof to get their friends to the feet of Jesus because they thought he was better than anything this world had to offer. Approval for other people will get you and I to show up on Sunday mornings, keeping our sin and our mistakes and our needs hidden because we are so worried about what other people might think if we get honest about that. Desperation will say, I don't care who knows this because once I bring this into the light, there's a victory in Jesus that I can experience, not in heaven one day, but right now. Desperate people find that. People who want the approval of God never ever experienced deep transformation, or approval of people ever experienced deep transformation. Because here's the problem, Jesus is so kind, he will not heal what you hide. That's why all throughout the Bible, do you know what he asked people? Do you want to get well? Probably part of that is, do you want to surrender to me above all, even the needs, the opinions, the approval of other people, and some people don't. And so in essence, this is the invitation that we get to this place, that we are surrendered in a rich way. Now, how do you get this kind of desperation for God? How do you get a kind of desperation like this woman that you are just sold out? Jesus answers this in Luke chapter seven, verses 40 through 43. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love me more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Notice what he says, you have judged correctly. Now, as we close out, um, what I wanna do is just take a moment uh, and just actually respond to what I think might be just a time of communion and invitation. Because I think if you're gonna have a desperation for God, and if you have your communion cups, you can take them out. I'm just gonna lead us in a time 
of responding with a deep desperation for God. But I think in, in a desperation for God, it's always contingent on two things. It's first contingent on our view of sin, and it's also contingent on our view of grace. So what Jesus did to make sure that the early disciples knew this, but also so that you and I, thousands of years later, could experience this practice of sacrament of remembering both the collision of our sin, the magnitude of our sin, but the magnitude of God's grace is he gave this practice to be reminded called communion. And what he did was with the disciples, he took these common household items, loaf of bread and some wine that symbolized his body that was gonna be broken and his blood that would be shed. So what I want you to do is just pull out first this little piece of bread that is a symbol of Jesus' body that is broken for us. You know, when you read this text, some people can just go, you know what, it seems like Jesus is putting a premium on sin because he talks about this person with this little debt and other people who have this massive debt. But what Jesus is actually doing here is reminding us that every one of us is like that 500 person debt. The Bible says in Psalms that against you only have I sinned. And so I just say this, if you don't have an appropriate view of your sin, the magnitude of your sin, what will happen is you will either have apathy or judgment. You'll have apathy because you'll think, you know what, Jesus doesn't need to forgive that much. Or you'll look at other people and go, you know what, why can't they get their life together? But I wanna just say this to you. It wasn't the sins of other people that put Jesus on the cross, it was your sin. It's my sin. If no one else on this earth existed but Brian, my sins would have crucified Jesus. Can I ask an honest question? When's the last time you just wept over your sin? When's the last time you just came face to face with the fact that you bring nothing to Jesus other than your brokenness, your sin? He alone is what makes you righteous. When's the last time you just came to your space and you said, without Jesus, I'd be lost, I'd be broken, I'd be empty. It's by his grace alone. You know, Paul says this phrase, he says, I'm the worst of all sinners. And most people think it's attached to his past. I don't think it was. Because I think the closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize the gap between who you are and who he is. You realize that it's not the people out there that crucified Jesus, it's Brian. And so we come face to face with the fact that our sin is what crushed Jesus. What do you need to repent of today? Repentance is not feeling sorry for yourself. The Bible says repentance is literally turning from something and looking back at the face of Jesus. Maybe you need to repent of a spirit of criticism. Maybe we need to stop minimizing certain sins in our life and go, you know what, I am critical about this stuff. I do look for the worst in people. I do elevate these things. Maybe it's a spirit of approval. You know God's calling you to a deeper level with him, but you know that your passion for Jesus will threaten others' complacency. And so you've just stayed at a lukewarm space and Jesus is going to repent of that. Maybe it's some addiction, something in your life, but right now what I want you to do is just for the next 30 seconds or so, repent, turn towards God, give him that thing and remember that he was crushed for that. Take this moment right now.
take, eat, remember the price that was paid. Then Jesus took this cup of wine, which was a symbol of his blood that was going to be shed. And you know, as I was studying for this text, I was thinking how awkward, how humiliating this woman's experience where she goes and she enters this room, she wipes Jesus' nasty feet with her hair. It's awkward. But you know, it doesn't compare to what Jesus did on the cross for us. The Bible says he's the King of kings and Lord of lords and he was given a crown of thorns. He was given this tattered garment. In a mocking way, he was given the title King of Jews. He didn't die in front of people who were honoring and serving and declaring his goodness. He died in front of people who were mocking and spitting on him. And the beauty of this is that he did it for the love of the Heavenly Father, but also so that you and I could experience a grace that helps us understand your sin is big, but his grace is better. That we carry a, an awareness of sin, but we carry an awareness of grace. The Bible says because of what Jesus has done and the atonement on the cross, in Hebrews 4, one of the most shocking verses in the Bible, it says we approach him with a boldness and a confidence. We approach the throne of grace. So what that means is that whatever you're carrying this morning, maybe you're carrying some things from your past because you failed to receive the grace of God. You're aware of your sin. But what you need to receive is a spirit of grace and compassion. The heavenly father loved us so much that he willingly let his son be crushed. And this blood sets us free. In fact, if you don't know Jesus, let me just remind you, there's not some complex spiritual DMV process. It's simply confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And if that's you, do that. But for other people in this room, can I just tell you, if your past still impacting your present. It's not your past. Some people carry guilt and shame around and what you need to do this morning is really receive a forgiveness, the grace of God, the compassion of God. Or maybe what it is is that there is something in your life that you think is hopeless. And what you need to understand is that as you receive the blood of Jesus, you are receiving the power of God. So you're not just set free, you become a saint equipped with the fullness of God in your life. This is the cup. That's why Jesus says, we've got to remember this. We've got to remember that a desperation only comes from understanding our sin, but understanding the magnitude of his grace and his blood that speaks a better word. So this morning, as we close out, what I want you to do is just whatever you need to receive this morning, you need to let go of something in your past. You need to step into a deeper hope. Take that, give it to God, receive a spirit of compassion and grace. Take the cup, be reminded that there's no condemnation, compassion and grace for those who are in Christ Jesus. Take, drink.
drink. Hey, we're going to be done. We're going to close out right now. If you would, I'm just going to ask you to stand. We're going to close out with just a few lyrics from I Surrender All as just kind of our response today that in the love of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus, we surrender all. So we're going to just sing these as we close out our time together, then we'll be done.